Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we offer resources to equip you and stories to inspire you on your adoption journey. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. We often have opportunities to be guests on other podcasts, and we've had some great conversations. We would hate for you to miss them. Because we're taking the month of July off from recording new episodes, we thought it would be the perfect time to share some of those interviews with you right here on our podcast. This is one of our favorites. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, friends, to Around the World with the Archibald Project. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. My name is Nick, and I am one of the co-founders of the Archibald Project, And I am joined, as always, by our other co-founder, my beautiful wife, Whitney. If you are new to our podcast, we are here to help you thrive in one of the most important jobs in the world, caring for vulnerable children. We interview all kinds of people with valuable experience so we can learn from them and be inspired in our own journeys. So with all that in mind, let's get started. This stuff before. Oh, okay. I'll close my eyes. No, you don't have to close your eyes. But you can't stop burping. I can't. I'm drinking bubbly water. All right. Welcome back to Around the World with the Archibald Project. I'm here with my amazing wife, Whitney. Do you really think I'm amazing or do you just say that so people think you're so sweet? Let me think about that. No, I think you are amazing. (laughs) Good answer. It's true. So actually, I was thinking about this. Something that people don't know about you, Whitney, or maybe they do, is how much you love to paint. (laughs) <laughs> or like home improvement projects. I kid you not. I will come home from work and somehow she's found a way to paint almost every day. But it's not like I'm painting on a canvas. I'm painting our walls in yes. our home. But you you paint lots of walls and then you'll repaint them. I know. You just don't know what you're going to like. You got to try it, you know? Yeah. Okay. So along the home improvement lines, I wanted to tell everybody about this. You, the other day, we so we moved recently, mm-hmm. and we were working on putting up a wood ceiling, mm-hmm. and it's a struggle, you know? You have two people on a ladder, using a nail gun, all this stuff. I'm getting down <laughs> to get another piece of wood, and Whitney <laughs> is on the ladder, holding the nail gun and the board, trying to take a selfie <laughs> video or something while she's... In the air with the ladder. But do you know why I did that very specifically? I don't know that there's a good reason. You got mad at me. He got so mad at me. But the reason I did it is because nail guns used to intimidate me. And I feel like I want to empower other women out there who may be watching my Insta stories. And I feel like if they see me using a nail gun, they might think, I've always wanted to do this one home project. And I don't know how. And nail guns intimidate me. But Whitney could figure it out and she could do it. So I can too. So I really did it. I promise, honest to God, I was doing it to inspire other women to pick up a nail gun and do home projects. But were you trying to inspire them to pick up a nail gun and their phone at the same no, time? No, stop it. It seemed a little outrageous I to me. I know, you got mad at me. No, I never get mad at you. <laughs> well, anyway, so we have an awesome guest today. I'm so excited. I'm name such is, a fangirl. Her name is Melissa Corkum. Is mm-hmm. that how you pronounce yep. it? And she has a podcast called the Adoption Connection Podcast, yep. right? And you've been on that podcast. I have. I was on it a couple months ago, but I didn't listen to it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Talk all about you and how amazing you are. No, you. Don't. I did. I actually went back to our story of how we met. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
But no, Melissa's amazing. She was adopted herself. She has adopted her um, some of her children. She's had a beautiful adoptions. She's had hard adoptions. She is a parent coach. Um, she is so trained and well-versed in trauma and helping parents like build trust-based relationships with their children. It's awesome. And I just find so much hope in the their podcast specifically. I remember, I think we were in Congo when I found their podcast and it was such a hard season and heck, we're still in a hard season sometimes, but their podcast specifically gave me a lot of tools, resources, and hope to help our children and our family thrive. So yeah, big fan of Melissa. As I was reviewing a little bit for this podcast, I was reading some of her posts and I felt like something she does that's really good is she just is very relatable Mm -hmm. and very honest about the hard things and encouraging people to give themselves grace and give themselves a break and not beat yourself up for messing up that you're not alone. I feel like that's such a big part of healing and yourself and your children. I'm excited to hear what she has to say. Let's jump in. Let's Let's talk to her. Melissa, we're honored to have you here. We're so excited to talk and learn from you and have all of our listeners out there learn from your wisdom. So thanks for being here. Guys, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Yeah, thank you. Good grief. I feel like I have so many questions for you already. So This is going to be a fun conversation. Well, you're not recording again for another like three hours, right? So we have some yeah, time. So we're going to three our <laughs> first three-hour podcast. Yes, I like it. Since a lot of the stuff we talk about is heavier, we always like to start with a question to help people get to know you or something fun. And I read in your bio, Melissa, you said that you love de-stressing with popcorn and Netflix. So I was wondering what's kind of your favorite or go-to show right now? So we're watching Alone. Um, It's like a survival, you know, reality TV show. But really, we'll watch anything funny. Um, yeah, funny. I'm all about the funny and lighthearted. Yeah, funny. Uh, you know, sometimes cooking shows. Yeah, and I like anything really crunchy. So I do like popcorn in general. But like my favorite thing is when my kids save me the bottom of the bowl where there's like the half popped kernels, like the Stop really it. crunchy ones. Oh my gosh, I avoid those pieces at all cost. <laughs> okay, well then we need to become popcorn buddies because that's like <laughs> that would work out really well. I'm gonna start mailing you all my leftover popcorn. <laughs> true love Whitney true love I do what I can that's funny that you say you like funny shows because I feel like the show we're watching right now is so stressful and not funny but that's not like us okay so my parents would never let me have a television in my room when I was little until I think I was about to graduate high school they gave me a tv that I could take with me to college and it had a little dvd player and I had the best of the friends show And so I started, when I was 18, I started watching Friends every night before bed, or like as I was falling asleep. And I can't now fall asleep really without having Friends on, or we've switched to The Office or Parks and Recreation. Sounds sounds super healthy. I know, I've got a really (laughs) healthy sleep life. But it's really, it helps my mind just kind of like zone out, and it's always funny and lighthearted and nothing serious. Yeah. yeah. No, I get that. I get that. Yeah. She's like, and I'm, I'm going to help you need therapy for that. So. <laughs> uh, but okay. Anyways, enough about me. Let's talk about you. <laughs> so Melissa, I kind of wanted to start back at the beginning and get a little bit of your backstory. So you said you were adopted from Korea. Can you tell us a little bit about this and when this happened and your memories from that, if any? 
So I was adopted in the early 80s. I was three or four months when I came home. And it was in this era of adoptions where I think probably the most common country at the time for international adoptions was South Korea. And the crazy thing is, is that we literally came like by the dozens on airplanes. And so now it's so common to travel for international adoption. And it's really required in most cases. But in our case, my parents paid an escort fee and like a social worker would get on a plane in Korea with like 10 to 15 kids. Most of them were babies and they would ask for volunteers to hold us. Oh my God. Are you serious? Like complete strangers on the airplane. Yeah. And so we actually have pictures because those individuals would be, they were like businessmen or whatever who were flying back and forth. Like they're the ones who presented the kids to the families. And so we all have these pictures of like whoever held us on the plane coming off the airplane. It was like a monumental, like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Do you, so you obviously have no memories of that, but do you guys have any connection to the random volunteer who held you on the plane? No, we don't. What we did keep in touch with the other families. So, you know, the group of like 10 families that all were at the airport greeting kids that day. We used to do reunions like every year oh, for a couple cool. years. It stopped when we were in elementary school. So we weren't, we didn't all keep in touch, but I do okay. remember some early memories of going down to the Chesapeake Bay and like hanging out for the day at the beach with a bunch of other Korean adoptive families who and hmm. who all came on the same plane. Wow. Wow. So I I feel like I've heard a lot of stories of people adopted from this era traveling back to find their birth family. Do you have any contact or knowledge of that? So I was abandoned in front of an orphanage doorstep probably at just a couple days old. So there's not a whole lot of information. Um, I certainly, you know, I think could put a lot of time and energy into a search if I wanted to. But I think Mm -hmm. the thinking part of my brain has always just assumed that the chances of finding or connecting with birth family would be really slim. Mm -hmm. Um, Our youngest is adopted from Korea. And so we did travel in 2009 to pick him up. And we spent extra time in the country just because I had never been. We actually were able to take my mom with us. Yeah, it was really fun. And we traveled south to the city where I was born and made a connection with the organization where I had been abandoned. But even that was kind of... um, I don't know, anticlimactic, I suppose, because the actual physical building where I was abandoned, like doesn't exist anymore. So the organization's the same, but it's in like a completely different place. And they had, yeah, they had a record of me, but like I was transferred from there to Holt, which is a Mm -hmm. pretty prominent agency in Korea. And so they literally had like one paragraph on me. They were like, yep, we know that you were here and you stayed for like a night. And then that was it. (laughs) So, um, you know, we traveled Hmm. by bus like two hours each way to like go. And I don't know exactly what I was expecting, but we kind of laugh about it now because we were like got all the way there and the agency director gave us like what she knew, which was kind of exactly what I knew. And then we're all like, okay, now what? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of crazy though that they still had that on file because I can't imagine back in the 80s, you know, they had stuff in computers or like. Yeah. Well, in Korea... You know, they have a foster system that 
is similar to the one in the States. So their record keeping is pretty good. I think if there had been any information, you know, that had been left with me, I probably could get it. And I have two siblings who are also adopted from Korea, different stories. And I think in each of their stories, there's probably more information available. And it was well documented uh, because the country, for the most part, at least in the city areas, is pretty developed. Wow, that's really cool. Hmm. That's really, I didn't know that. Okay, so you you have six children, um, some biological and some adopted. Do you do you think that your own adoption has influenced the way that you've raised your adopted children? So I think it does now. I did not hugely identify as an adoptee. It's not that I didn't know I was adopted. I just didn't. It just didn't register as like this huge part of my story, and it may be. Hmm. So I know you're an Enneagram fan, Whitney. I'm an Enneagram seven. And, you know, we're kind of like very forward thinking. We are thinkers rather than feelers. And so I knew I was adopted. I had no problem talking about it. In fact, I thought it was pretty cool. I, you know, I kind of talked it up a lot as a kid, like, haha, I get, you know, not just a birthday, but an airplane day. I get like double the presents. <laughs> and, you know, I, I would play up all these things. And like, sometimes I would play my adoptee card and be like, I don't, I can't do that assignment. You know, I don't know those things. Um, so it wasn't really like traumatic <laughs> for me so much as like, just like an extra thing. But I didn't ever really think about how it had impacted my identity or all of the other things, grief and loss, the way that it has impacted a couple of our kids who are adopted. But I think, you know, now that we know about trauma and attachment and all the things that no one taught us before we adopted our first son through adoption, I think I have a softer place in my heart for thinking about behaviors through this kind of neurobehavioral lens and this trauma lens, because I do remember it's, it made me think about my childhood and some of the times that I had been misunderstood. And so, you know, I think there's this piece that allows me to more fully kind of empathize with their situation, even though it wasn't my complete experience of it growing up. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I think that's really interesting, too, just to hear your side of that, because we have talked to quite a few people that were adopted and are now adults. And, you know, just how, like you're saying, how different personalities and personality types process that and deal with it can be very different. And it's important to not assume that people all feel the same way about it just because they were adopted. Yeah, yeah, I... I talk a lot about, and I work with a lot of adoptive families, and we talk a lot about kind of following your child's lead. I never want to discount the experience of an adoptee. And I certainly know a lot who feel that sense of loss and that sense of grief, you know, really intensely. Um, but it's mm-hmm. not everybody's experience. I have my best friend growing up also was a Korean adoptee. And I have a couple cousins who are adopted and a couple friends who are adopted. And, you know, then I have my siblings and you know, we all just had such vastly different experiences. And so I also think that there's an entire population of adoptees who probably were more like me. I had no idea that there was this kind of adoptee conversation even going on before I was an adoptive parent. And that's what kind of thrust me into this world. And so I think there's a whole Hmm. population of adoptees out there who kind of don't have this innate need to have their story heard and to advocate for this loss and and grief piece because it's never occurred to them because they've just never thought twice about it, kind of like I hadn't growing up. And so, so yeah, so I try to represent that way to see the story. And again, even folks who have 
more of my perspective have their own nuances. But I think following yeah. our kids lead towards any experience they could have um, is is great because, you know, I heard adoptees say like, well, all adoptees always are thinking about their birth moms on their birthdays. And that's not been my experience. And so I think it's wise to consider that that might be the experience of your child, but also not to maybe project, you know, hmm. certain feelings yeah, and big things absolutely. if that's not yeah. the way they're experiencing them. No, that's, that's such a good, such good advice and something to think about. Especially if you have multiple adopted children, like all of our kids are, they have so many similarities, but they also are very different in the way they process things. And so the way one child responds to talking about, you know, birth family or Congo is very different than the way the other two view it. And I think that's really interesting that I don't, I want to make sure that I don't push his feelings on the other two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so I'd love to jump in and talk about something that's kind of hard, but it's kind of floating around the internet right now for a few reasons. But I think the adoption world right now is really trying to figure out and understand what adoption dissolution and adoption disruption are. And I'd love to have you kind of explain just in general what adoption dissolution is for our audience. And then we're going to talk a little bit about that. So adoption dissolution is when a family decides that they can no longer provide the care that a child needs, and they decide to basically place that child for adoption again. And then that child goes to another family, and it's a legal process, and there's a lot that goes into that. That's different than finding like an out-of-home treatment or out-of-home placement for a child Um, either a long-term respite situation or something where the parents still retain rights, you know, nothing legal in terms of like who the parents are changes, but the parents are bringing more people on board, providing higher levels of care for a child. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to distinguish those two things. Yeah, absolutely. And in your job of helping parents, I would imagine that you hear a lot of pain and struggles from adoptive and foster parents who might be considering dissolution, how do you like help them? I know that's a really big question. <laughs> well, it's, it's a great question. It's a really important question. And I always say we'll do better to reach out for help before we feel like we want to give up that much. Mm-hmm. But also, again, knowing that there are solutions and they're not as readily available as they should be for families who feel like they need a higher level of care. And the fact of the matter is, is that we can't always provide the level of care that some of our kids need. And it's not anybody's fault. I mean, other than traumas, right? And and I think one of the things I spend a lot of time with families talking about, one of the first exercises we always go through is defining success for your family. And a lot of times it means redefining success. What does that look like? Hmm. Success can't be defined by outcome. It can't be defined by our kids and their behaviors or even what their needs are. It really has to be defined by something we as parents or individuals can control. And that's not normally not how we define success as parents. We usually define it as, you know, whether or not we can take our kids to the grocery store without a meltdown. Or Mm. in my case, I thought success was being able to care for all the kids in my home under my roof and without extra help. I, I had defined failure as needing to call in extra levels of care that might look like our daughter staying somewhere else other than here. Um, yeah. And so I really try to help families see that finding the level of care that's going to ultimately help our kids on their journey towards wholeness is never a failure. 
So mm-hmm. if it so means good. a higher level of care, then that's what it means. I really wish that the world and the adoption community would stop shaming families for looking for those higher levels of care. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the other piece that I didn't understand when we were walking through kind of our lowest point as a family is just like we understand how broken relationships and trauma, complex trauma, relational trauma, physical abuse, neglect, all of those things impacts our children's nervous systems and their ability to trust other people to take care of them. That when we are caring for a child who has such protective walls up for good reason, our nervous system also puts protective walls up because that relationship is not the kind of reciprocal relationship that we were designed for. Hmm. Um, and so something happens in parents and caregivers sometimes called blocked care and it's subconscious and it's our own body's protective mechanism. It's the way, it's the way we were designed working. You know, it doesn't discriminate between protecting us from an actual threat and protecting us from someone who we're supposed to love unconditionally, you know, and take care of. And so I think also when I work with parents who really feel like they're at the end of their rope, we start there because, you know, I can throw every parenting tool and every book at you, but if you're in blocked care and you're exhausted and you're nervous, your own nervous system is fried and traumatized, you're not available and ready to take on any more tools, help, suggestions. And in fact, a lot of the parents I work with have a lot of the tools. They already know a lot of the things, but they were missing the piece where they take care of their own nervous system in order so they can continue to take care of the fragile nervous system of a child from a hard place. Yeah, Hmm. absolutely. And I took one of your, one of the courses you guys did on your Facebook group working with blocked care, because I think, I mean, I guess out there, putting it out there for the whole world, but I feel like I've experienced that and it was really helpful. But something that I also have noticed even after walking through that and then continuing to do and put in place some of the practices that you guys suggest, um, I've noticed in like a good season with our family that if something triggers a child, it can also re-trigger me and I feel like my blocked care goes back up. Is that is that a thing? Can parents or caregivers subconsciously go back into blocked care after they've kind of walked out of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it more like a journey or a cycle, you know, if we think about our nervous system kind of on this ladder, where at the very top, we're able to socially engage and be open and receptive and vulnerable. And it's where we kind of feel our bravest. Like think about the kind of bravery you would have to feel if you were just like standing at the top of a ladder. Um, And then as things happen, like our nervous system is constantly changing and moving it's dynamic because we're people and we're in and out of relationships and in and out of situations and something might happen. And even it might even be a split second, you know, our nervous system can kind of fall down the ladder a little bit into what we call like fight or flight, which most people are familiar with. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's something that happens in the nervous system that, you know, puts us there. And then based on our past experiences, our nervous system can be resilient and kind of climb back up that ladder. And sometimes that can take a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds. Um, and sometimes we get stuck there. And then sometimes if we feel like we can't fight a situation or run away from it, our nervous system continues to collapse down the ladder. And eventually we hit like that dissociative 
freeze state where we really can't access the resources that we have. Um, and that's an obvious, much longer climb back up to safety. But that's yeah. happening for our kids and us dynamically all the time. And hmm. how much time we get stuck kind of on the lower rungs of those ladders is the important thing to look at, like our resilience to be able to climb back up to the top. Yeah. Hmm. So how then when parents come to you who are maybe feeling like they need outside care or they're feeling like they can't go on anymore, how do you balance showing people that they can keep going and encouraging them to versus when they need to look for outside care? Yeah, well, it's this is something I wish agencies would work with parents on before they were in the midst of it. You know, when you're already feeling like you're drowning, it's so hard to make these decisions because our nervous systems aren't in our thinking brains. Like we're not yeah. using our logic. Mm-hmm. We're That's we're true. on alert, you know. Um, and so I really encourage parents if they have ever a downtime. Sometimes we just look for short term respite right away, just so everyone can get a breather and get a break, and when everyone can put their thinking brain back in play for a little bit, and then. Um, be really objective about kind of what your boundaries are as a family. And it's different for every family, but I think it's important to know what they are because otherwise we become kind of like frogs in boiling water, right? Where you, if you put a frog in boiling water, they immediately will know that's not right. We shouldn't be here. But I think in most of our cases, we all are frogs in room temperature water and the heat is being turned up and the behaviors are escalating and we're slowly adjusting to our new normal again and again and again. And then before we know it, we're cooked. So we kind of have to have some markers, like some really objective ones towards at what point in our family. And like I said, it's different for all families. Will we look for outside help. And that could be short-term outside help, like calling a neighbor to come over and help be a pattern interrupt to a really big behavior. It could be, you know, a mental health evaluation at your local emergency department. It could be looking for higher levels of care, like residential or something like that. So you have to kind of just know where your boundaries are. And a lot of that has to do with you know, the parents and resilience, um, if there's other children in the family, uh, safety, I think is always trumps everything. Um, but safety, physical safety is a little bit easier to define, but emotional safety is a little bit more of a moving target for each family. And Mm. so we'll just work together to kind of figure out what those markers are for each family. That's good. That's really good. I've been following the Archibald project for a few months now. Storytelling is so simple and so profound and can reveal how there are so many avenues of support and roles to be played by each one of us in the service of families, children, and youth in hard places. I myself, being a foster care caseworker for almost two years now, have been so inspired and encouraged by the work Archibald Project is doing and I'm honored to support. My name is Shelby Brown. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a proud supporter of the Archibald Project. You can help inspire more people like me by donating at www.thearchibaldproject.com. So, Melissa, you actually have, I think, some personal experience with this. You've had some rough times, it seems like, with a couple of your adopted kids. Are you willing to share a little bit about that and kind of maybe some of the mistakes you made and things that you learned through those experiences? Yeah. So the great thing about having a bunch of kids is that I can talk in generalities without (laughs) breaching anybody's privacy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I think, Nick, what you said and how you asked the question is brilliant because really it wasn't so much about our kids so much as it was about how we as parents 
experienced that and Hmm. we didn't understand what was happening. We didn't understand what was happening to ourselves. It just blindsided the whole family. And we just were, we were way more reactive than we were responsive. Um, and we take full responsibility for some of the things that went wrong in those like three to five years where things were like really, really ugly. And so we have learned a lot. It did take getting some out of home respite for one of our kids. We had a couple other kids who were a little bit older who were like, peace out. I didn't really want a family anyway. I don't like the way this Mm. family feels, you know, and they left for job core. And when we finally had some breathing room, we did have a decision to make, like, were we just going to kind of shut down, be really protective and kind of like put that season behind us? Like, because our kids were telling us we don't want to be a part of the family anymore we reject you. Um, and quite frankly, they had really good reasons to feel that way about us. Mm. Well, and your defense mechanisms probably were heightened because you felt like you failed and it's hard to admit that at times. So yeah, I, could, I mean, there I were just so many, tendency. there were so many things. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of hurt feelings, a lot of hurts all the way around. And, um, but God was super, super gracious. And I feel like we've gotten the ultimate, what I call like the ultimate redo. Wow. And so we had this opportunity to kind of just, re-posture ourselves towards our kids and kind of face them with open arms. And some of them were more willing to kind of revisit that than others. It took years for for one of them, but we've really come to a healthier place. We all have a lot to go, but we are in a connected, communicative place with all of our kids now. And that just feels really special. Like, I just don't want to ever want to take that for granted. Hmm. That's really, that's hopeful. Thank you for sharing that. That's really cool. Can you, can you share maybe some of the specific things that you guys did to work on yourselves and kind of get that second chance or, and, or deal with those feelings of rejection or failure? Cause I know that there's a lot of people out there who have adoptive children who, when they're older, they're like, I'm done. And they probably don't know what to do with that, those feelings or how to maybe even get that second chance if possible. So I think all adoptive families need a really good therapist who understands attachment, trauma, all the things. I'm a really huge fan of like understanding how our body and mind work together and understanding how the body really stores a lot of these experiences as stress and trauma in our bodies. And Mm. so besides like having a really good trauma therapist who can help you like verbally process, I think it's really great to access other therapies like the safe and sound protocol, EMDR, trauma release exercise. And, And maybe it's my personality, but those things have been the things that have helped me move the needle towards my own journey and forgiveness and, and having my nervous system continue to stay open even through rejection. And then from mm-hmm. the practical piece, like we just swallowed our pride on a lot of things. And one of the things I did, um, just because I have a really intense personality and what was happening was even my questions that were meant to be like, I want to get to know you better. And I'm curious about what you're up to in your life. were being experienced by my kids as like interrogation. Oh, um, that's fascinating. And wow. so, and again, like personality differences, all the things. And so this was actually a challenge set to me by my therapist. And she said, now this was for an older child who actually wasn't living with us anymore, but she said, you're not allowed to ask him any questions for at least six months, maybe a year. And Whoa. so 
being intentional about reframing our conversations to be there and be available, um, but never asking a question radically wow. changed our relationship. And I know it sounds crazy, but it worked. So wow. that is, <laughs> that's fascinating. That is very fascinating. Our kids are younger, but we've kind of just gotten into this really cool rhythm almost of if something hard is going on, Nick goes in and speaks with them and like is able to ask them questions and how like, how are you feeling in this specific moment? And they're just starting to get, I think, maybe like comfortable or safe enough to be able to express how when somebody's when mom or dad or a caregiver guardian says something to me, it makes me feel like this. And then we're able, Nick and I are able to be like, okay, let's, it's really important for us to not speak to them that way or say questions like that or ask them to do things two times in a row. Or I think it's really interesting to really know your kid and how they receive love and respect because you're saying that your child didn't need all the questions but we weren't even thinking about asking our kid questions necessarily on how they were feeling in the moment and I feel like that's kind of really helped an open dialogue for us to be able to start working towards like a healthier relationship overall yeah yeah I think that's great. And just as a backstory too, our kids came to us, our last three at 11, 13, and 14. So we really were at a huge relationship deficit coming into this. There's a lot that happens in those years. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't really honor um, kind of that deficit coming in. So we had a lot of ground to make up on the back end um, once we realized all the things we were doing wrong and realizing that we really wanted to be a safe place for them to be at, um, which is a scary thing as a parent because it means that there are a lot of kind of life lessons that they've kind of had to learn the hard way. But also realizing that because our relationship and our attachment relationship started so late in life and really at a time when developmentally, if they had been, you know, with a consistent caregiver, they would have been detaching from a caregiver, not attaching because that's what you want to do at 13 and 14. That's so true. Um, Yeah. So we, we had to be really clear about our roles and realize that our relationship at its stage, fragile stage could not handle us to be anything else but like the safe place to land. So we couldn't be the pastor or the teacher or like we pawned off a lot of things to our village, you know, that we Mm, couldn't make suggestions about exercise or eating right or praying if something was hard or, you know, all of these things that those had to come from other voices um, because our relationship just couldn't handle all those different roles, which was foreign to me because we started with two kids by birth and a son who was adopted as a toddler and not that he hasn't had his challenges, but the relation attachment relationship is different. Um, Hmm. And our relationship can handle those things. And so to be a mom who wasn't a teacher and a healthcare provider and all those things was a different role to step into. Wow. Yeah. That's really fascinating. It's really good to recognize that. And I, I feel like we identify with that some because of this whole pandemic stuff we're forced to be teachers right now and we're not sure that that is the healthiest thing. Well, (laughs) you are mostly right now. Yeah, I've realized that I can't be a teacher right now to one of my children because it's just not healthy for our connection and bond. And so I've had to, I'm trying to figure out how we're going to outsource that once school starts up again. But I'm like, I know his education is so important and I don't want that to weaken but I also know that our bond and tr- his trust in me is so important. And so I don't want that to be 
traded in for him learning how to read. Yeah. Well, and you know what? Formal education is kind of new to the world, but relationships aren't. And so it's okay to prioritize a relationship. And honestly, if our kids feel safe in the relationships that they're in, um, even if they never go to a day of formal school, they will learn everything they need in life. Mm, That's really good to hear. Thank you for saying that because I beat myself up so much about how far behind this child is in traditional learning. Well, and on that, Melissa, I feel like something I really appreciate about the things that you write is how much you really try to hone in on giving yourself grace and parents really cutting themselves some slack. And so one of the things that you say is it's better to mess up than be a perfect parent. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is none of us are perfect. Our kids aren't perfect. We're not perfect. And we need to know it's a life skill to know how to not be perfect. And so if we set this bar that we have to be the perfect parents, then we're not modeling to our kids how to not be perfect well. And so um, Robin Goebel talks about like, we only have to get it right a third of the time. And to someone who's Mm. a perfectionist and did really well in school, like a 33% is failing. (laughs) So it's hard to get my mind around, but she talks, you know, about only getting it right a third of the time. Um, that will probably mess up a third of the time. And then that other third we use to repair the third that we messed up. And I think that that's really true. And I think, you know, it's not so much the failure so much as what we do on the back end of that failure. And our kids, especially those who came to us from hard places, already feel this immense burden, I think, to be right or be good. Um, and of some of that's dictated by personality style, but they make up stories in their heads about why they were in an adoption situation to begin with. Um, and there's mm. lots of reasons that happen. But if we have the standard of perfection for ourselves as parents, then that also reflects our expectations for our kids. And they're already struggling a lot Mm. against that. And so I think our ability to not be perfect gives them the space to feel safe to not be perfect. Uh, Hmm. That's really a good word and convicting even because I feel like sometimes we try to hold our kids to a level that is maybe a little bit too high because we feel like they've got to make up for lost time. So I think it's important for us to have that grace for ourselves and for our kids as well. Yeah. What's some great advice that you would give somebody who is preparing to adopt? Oh, goodness. It better be, it better be great. So (laughs) don't, don't slack on this one. I know. Um, You know, from a really practical perspective, I think parents or families should have 10 to $20,000 per child they're adopting, like set aside for all the extra services and therapy everyone needs to do this well. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's so true, man. And we don't talk about it. We talk a lot about the fees and the expenses and the red tape to adopt. And I know that especially in international adoption, that feels insurmountable sometimes. And so I can't imagine what it would feel like, you know, to go into an adoption information meeting and get the lowdown of all the things and then also be like, well, besides your home study fee and your travel fees and all the other things, um, we also want you to have like a reserve fund of, you know, 15K per kid. <laughs> no, that's actually but genius. I, that yeah. People should, I should think, have that. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is 
finances were such a big part of the decisions of how we cared for our kids when everything was chaotic because money didn't grow on trees and we didn't, you know, we had the willingness to do a lot of resources, but we didn't have the cash to throw at all the different things that maybe could have helped. And it really limited. um, And it was like an extra layer of stress. And I just thought like, well, if we had just planned for this better, you know, it would have just been one less stressful thing. And there's so much we can't control in this journey in terms of Hmm. how trauma impacts our kids and how it impacts us and how it impacts the siblings and all of the things. It feels like one area where we could control something that could lessen the impact it had on our families. Yeah. Well, and that even makes me just think, practically speaking, it's probably not an option for a lot of families, but people are always looking for ways to help in this space that are not necessarily adopting or fostering. And so if you could somehow help a family by Someone providing listening. by providing money to for therapy and things like that cuz it's it's somewhat easy sometimes to raise money for an adoption but the stuff after is not so common so yeah that could just be such a huge practical way of helping families heal and really pouring into this space Yeah, so if you're listening out there and you want to help an adoptive or foster family, start a GoFundMe page for some therapy sessions. That would be an awesome... Our our community did that for us when we came home from Congo. We had about $2,000 that somebody just Venmoed us, and they said, we've raised money for clothing therapy, date nights, like whatever you guys need for your family now. And it was such a blessing. Like it was such a blessing to receive that money. Yeah. Because so much focus is on the beginning of the journey when really the journey starts once your child comes home. Yeah. And keeps going. I feel silly. Like two, we're two and a half years in. I'm like, I feel like I shouldn't need therapy anymore. Like I feel like we should be good to go. And people just want to hear that things are going really well. And like, you know, we should be in this like perfect place as a normal, quote unquote, normal family. And it sets me back as a mom to feel like I'm struggling still or failing and like, oh, I need therapy still or my kids still need therapy. And I know that's not true, but sometimes how you feel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're experiencing, Whitney, things every day that we all probably need a therapist in our back pocket, right? So it's not like the journey you know, isn't just about when they entered your family. There's things that happen every single day in adoptive families that we need to process with the therapist. So we're on this like rolling thing, you know, it's not just like two and a half years from the time they came home, we should be doing better. But like, you've had that. And then you had that initial like big transition. And then you've also, you know, accumulated two and a half years of experiences you still need to process. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and all your wonderful advice. Yeah, yeah we're just really grateful. I'm really thankful for your wisdom. And we'll put your personal website and the Adoption Connection podcast up on our podcast page, which is www.thearchibaldproject.com forward slash podcast. And this is going to be our episode with Melissa Corkum. I know people are going to just, if they don't already listen to your podcast, they're going to love it. And I know they're going to find lots of wisdom from your website. And if anybody out there wants to contact Melissa as a parenting coach, we cannot recommend recommend her enough. I mean, you're not my parenting coach, but I kind of want to start doing sessions with you now. So, <laughs> so yeah, you're awesome. And we're really thankful for you. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I also want to throw out Whitney, you mentioned 
something called the compassion challenge that you did with the adoption connection, um, around blocked care. It's a, we've kind of condensed it into like a 20 minute quick course. Um, it used to be like a three day challenge, but, um, I'd love to offer that to Archibald project listeners. Um, so you guys can grab that or your listeners can grab that at the adoption connection.com slash T a P for the Archibald project. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's so awesome. Okay. We'll put that link out too. And to say thank you for doing that. We're going to post your mailing address and have everyone send you half-popped popcorn kernels. <laughs> so you'll have an unlimited supply. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Awesome. Well, we're really thankful for you, Melissa, and loved our conversation. Hopefully, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen. Everything the Archibald Project produces, including this podcast, is made possible by our incredible supporters. If our work has ever made an impact in your life, or maybe you are just feeling generous, please consider donating at thearchibaldproject.com so we can continue to help people thrive at caring for orphaned and vulnerable children. We hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. Even though the podcast is on summer break for July, we are still meeting at least weekly in the village, and we'd love to have you join us. To find out more information, visit theadoptionconnection.com slash village. As a valued podcast listener, we'd like to offer you half off of your first month. Just use the code podcast when you check out. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. Our new Instagram handle is at postadoptionresources. Or better yet, join our free Facebook community at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. And remember, you're a good parent doing good work. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.